Welcome to Movie Maker Interviews, where we talk to our greatest movie makers about the art and craft of making movies. My name is Tim Malloy. This week, our first guest is the awesome Margot Robbie, who is one of the stars of Bombshell. Robbie is very deservedly nominated for pretty much every award there is, more than I can keep track of, for her role in Bombshell. She plays a young Christian conservative who dreams of rising through the ranks at Fox News to the level of women like Megyn Kelly, who's played by Charlize Theron, and Gretchen Carlson, who's played by Nicole Kidman. But her character, Kayla, faces the same horrible dilemma as many of the women who crossed the path of Roger Ailes, head of Fox News. In addition to talking about Bombshell, I also asked Margot Robbie about her role in Mary Queen of Scots, her incredible audition for The Wolf of Wall Street, and the time she used to work at Subway. If you enjoy this interview, you're definitely going to want to check out the next issue of Movie Maker Magazine, where we talk with Margot Robbie and her teammates at Lucky Chop Productions about their slate of sharp, female-focused films coming up in 2020. After the interview, please stick around for our second segment, which is an interview with Charles Randolph, the screenwriter of Bombshell. And please check out the film, which is directed by Jay Roach and is in theaters Friday. Bombshell, your new film. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. How did you get into this character, Kayla? I mean, because she's sort of, she's a person who we may not like based on her politics or her ambitions, but we do really like her. Yeah. How did you make that happen? It's funny. I usually definitely, um, when I take on a character or a project, it's usually character first and then. I look at the rest of the project and the people involved and will it come together the way I hope it could and blah, blah, blah. Um, but in this instance, I signed on to the message of the film um, before falling in love with the character. And then I went back and started thinking, okay, yeah. <laughs> who is Kayla? How do I play her? Yeah. I don't understand her at all. Um, and I didn't have a lot to go off as far as personal experience because I didn't grow up in America. I didn't grow up in a family who watched Fox News. Um, there was a lot of things, like you said, her political point of view that I couldn't understand. Um, but that was just a research thing. That's not hard to do. Unfortunately, Charles and Jay, in fact, both grew up in families very much dedicated to Fox News, um, avid supporters. So I had a lot of conversations with them, of course. And, um, I don't know. It's the more I don't know. I always find if I don't understand a character, I just the more research you do, you start understanding them, and then little things click into place, and it starts making sense. And actually, I did as as far as the political point of view thing. I actually just started a fake Twitter account and started following a lot of young millennial conservative Republican <laughs> girls. Um, wow, which was really helpful and fascinating too. Yeah. There's, there's a lot. There's yeah. a lot of young. Um, conservative millennial women out there who are extremely vocal on their social media and that was very helpful um and then as far as her emotional journey it was pretty clearly mapped out on the page it wasn't hard to put yourself in her shoes and understand how you could feel or react in that situation there was also a lot of accounts to go off um both already um published um out in the world and ones that just the filmmakers conversations the filmmakers had with women who were um, harassed at fox news who for their own reasons haven't been able to come forward so i had a lot of extremely detailed 
information in that regard. And she started becoming real. I think every character for me starts becoming real when I act with the other actors. Mm-hmm. I'm so informed by how they behave. I completely, completely dependent on my co-stars yeah. when it comes to creating a character because any which way they play the scene is is altering how I'm going to play it. And I was so lucky to work across the actors that I got to work across. And I was particularly grateful, obviously, to be in a scene with Nicole Kidman or Charlize Theron or John Lithgow. But I also spent a lot of time with Kate McKinnon and I really found Kayla in my interactions with Kate. And she's so fantastic. And we really just get along immediately. I think we just, we just, our personalities click. And I found, I think I really found Kayla with her because she has, obviously Kayla has a pretty harrowing, some, journey and and some extremely disturbing and uncomfortable experiences in this film but there's also a lot of joy and laughter and fun in those moments with Kate McKinnon's character and and that's where she became real for me Mm. I don't think, this isn't much of a segue but I don't think you get enough credit for your accent work oh thanks (laughs) which is so good, but we've all just forgotten that you have an Australian accent Yeah, people aren't impressed by that anymore. I really, I got a lot of credit after Wolf of Wall Street, and everyone's like, "We thought you were from Brooklyn." Um, yeah, I should remind people. Hey, guys, I'm, no, it's uh, honestly, it's so integral to my process at this point. I don't even know how I could act in an Australian accent. Huh. I'd find it so strange. I've been offered the opportunity in in roles before, and I've that are said, "No, we want you to be able to feel free to improv a lot. So just do it. Just play it. Play it in your Australian accent." And actually, I'm so stilted now. I haven't acted so long in an Australian accent. I don't really know how to do it anymore. So I find it much easier to do all my improv in an accent, um, funnily enough. And it just immediately differentiates the character from myself. And um, anything I can do to distance myself from the character I'm playing helps me so much. And that's why I love when uh, the character doesn't look anything like me. So if I don't look like myself and I don't sound like myself... Um, I'm halfway there, honestly. Like my the imagination work is is kind of halfway done for you. Yeah, you went all in playing a queen. Uh, I'm gonna look as much not like myself as I possibly can. Do you know what's so, so funny? Fun. She's so it wasn't in the script that the look would be such a drastic um, difference because everyone said that everyone's like, oh, I, I I could totally see why you took on that role so that you could have that moment where you just look totally different I was like actually yeah. in the script you'd never know that we were going to look different it's just something that kind of evolved Jenny Shirkov who incidentally uh, was the hair and makeup department head on Sweet Frances the job that I met Tom and Josie my producing partners on oh, yeah. Um, yeah so they know her really well and she's extremely probably the most decorated hair and makeup designer in the world I don't know if that's a fact I'm just throwing that out there I think she's got a lot of awards is what I'm saying but she's very, very talented and I <laughs> trust her completely of course but Josie Rourke, our director, was really honing into the fact that Elizabeth got sick and that that was a crucial turning point in her vulnerability and affected her journey and relationship with Mary and the choices that she made um, after that. So when looking into that and playing into the fact that she got sick and smallpox almost killed her, uh, we started looking at pictures and we're like, whoa, smallpox, gnarly. I mean, like, it's really, really horrific. So if we're going to do that accurately, um, actually we should start 
getting some prosthetic pieces made. Mm. And and Jenny um, Jenny was like, okay. And she really went for it. And she was like, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I loved it. Uh, doing some research on your beginnings, I thought there must have been a point when you realized I'm really I'm good at this. Like this is something that I could do. And at that point, you moved to a bigger city from the Gold Coast. Yeah. And work in a subway. <laughs> no, I was working on. I was working at Subway before I moved to Melbourne. Okay. Um, I quit my job at Subway. I actually had a couple jobs at the time. I was working in a surf store. I think I was still doing some house cleaning, and I worked at Subway. And I was just graduating my last year of high school. And then I, um, yeah, I just graduated high school like a month ago. And then I got a job on Neighbours. And um, I remember going in and like resigning from Subway. <clears throat> and then I think six months later, Subway paid me to do a commercial for them. <laughs> <laughs> and I was at the shoot and I was like, so who told you guys? And they're like, what? And I was like, who told you that I used to work? I thought that's why I got this gig. And they were like, no, we had no idea. So, uh, yeah. It was very ironic that that was probably my first, yeah, real paycheck was from Subway, but in a, in a totally different realm. And it feels like there's a very big moment in your career when you go in for the audition for Wolf of Wall Street, and the story that is out there, and I don't know if this is true or not, so I thought I would ask you, is there's a scene where after some dialogue you're supposed to kiss Leonardo DiCaprio and instead you slap him? Yes, that is true. How, uh, oh, yeah. how did you work the courage to do that? I mean, it's... Honestly, I've just there's been a lot of times, um, sometimes where you just kind of lose yourself. I think when you're in a scene, especially if you're in a scene with someone that talented, that can make you forget that you're in a scene. Um, so I guess the honest answer is I just, I just got caught up in the moment. I think, and it seemed like the thing my character would do. <laughs> Thank God it turned out well. It really could have backfired and been a horrible situation. I could have been arrested for assault, but um, instead they gave me the part. <laughs> I mean, when you walk into the room with him, you must be thinking, I've seen this person on TV and movie screens for years. Now I'm just going to hit him. I honestly, when I walked into the room, I was, I was... I think I was just thinking about the scenes, really. And and I sh- later, I reflected on the fact... Before and after, I reflected on the fact that I was standing in a room with Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese acting. And, um, you know, that was incredibly special. But, no, when it was like game time I was just in the zone thinking about thinking about the scenes and just wanting to not waste the opportunity do you think that taking that big leap I mean do you think that is the reason that things open up for you or do you think it would have eventually happened anywhere because you would be that committed to the next opportunity it's funny I have thought about a lot like what if I didn't get the role in Wall Street would my career still have ended up in the same place I'd like to think it would have and I think it just would have taken longer a lot longer and I think uh, getting that role just fast-tracked everything I think I'd I'd like to think I still would have ended up in the same place but yeah I think it would have taken many years so the last question I have I mean we're obviously a publication for movie makers people who want to be in this industry you're both a producer and an actor what advice would you offer people who want to do both I'd say go for it number one because they work together beautifully. They re- like acting and producing. I, I get often. I often am asked, "How do you do both?" Um, and is one at the detriment of the other? And I thought it would be, to be honest. The first time I was doing it, I thought, "Oh God, I really hope my acting doesn't suffer because I'm producing, and vice versa. I hope my producing role 
um, isn't being neglected because of my acting. But I, I really think I am better at, at both jobs because I'm doing the other one. And I remember I did when I was working on Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. I asked Tina Fey, who is also a producer on that film and also acting in it. I said, "How are you doing both?" And she said, "It's producing a movie. It's really like a wedding day. If you've done all the preparation, you can just enjoy the day." And I've always taken that to heart as well. So it's true. If if you've done your job as a producer, I mean, it takes years before you get to the point of actually sometimes years. Sometimes a year, I guess, if you're lucky and things come together quickly. But still, a year is the quickest version of getting a project together to the point where you're then going to be on set shooting it. That's where your work has happened. By the time you're shooting, you've delegated the task. You've put your trust in your HODs and your crew and your cast. If you've done your job right, you should be able to sit there and just be ready to manage the situations that come up that you weren't able to foresee. Um, other than that, that's the time wherever you've handed over to everyone else to, to let them do their thing. You should trust them to do that. So, uh, yeah, inevitably things pop up all the time that no one could ever predict could happen and you've got to be ready to deal with it then. But I don't find it difficult to deal with that and act at the same time because I don't, I don't stay in character all day. I stay in, I'm in character from action and cut. I, I don't know. It's just not my, um, my process, I suppose, which is fortunate for this situation. And also, I'm not producing on my own. I've always got producing partners. And, yeah, if you can't rely on your, your partners, and yeah, you're probably stifling their job as well. So, no, it's worked out. It's really worked out. I would definitely say to people, it's absolutely possible, and go for it. That was Margot Robbie. And now, Charles Randolph, the screenwriter of Bombshell, as well as The Big Short. As you'll gather, he really likes these kinds of complex stories that make you see things in a different way. At the start of our interview, I asked him about the fact that he started pitching Bombshell just a few months after Fox News chief Roger Ailes died. For the technical people in the audience who might wonder how we recorded this interview, we used a piece of new technology called a telephone. Was this a story that you knew you wanted to write for years, but you kind of... I hate to put it this way, but sort of needed the principal character to die um, in order to have the freedom to write what you wanted to write? <laughs> no, interesting. I mean, it is true that I come from an evangelical family whose our, – our, our, my family's lives were sort of hijacked by Fox News at a certain point. Yeah. Um, and so I have not always had the most um, – warm and affectionate relationship to him to his, to him as a human being in my head uh, but no you know it was it was i mean i i do keep a mental list of issues that i'm interested in that i think might be good subject matter for for projects um and certainly sexual harassment was interesting and in, and in one of them in part because most of what we do in hollywood is we focus on on sexual harassment itself and not gender harassment they're slightly different things it's the difference between you know um the characters in say nine to five uh you know in terms of does is someone being you know put in the position to to sort of so, is sex being solicited from someone and is someone just being belittled for being a woman? And right. so they're different, slightly different legal categories. And I wanted to sort of attack 
the gender harassment as much as the sexual harassment because it's a more pernicious problem. So that had kind of always been in the back of my head. Uh, and then these characters emerged and this, and this story emerged, and they just felt like the right, the right venue for it. Um, it will come as no surprise to you, Tim, that I like complicated things. I like complexity. <laughs> uh, I sort of, you know, like like The Big Short, you know, this is incredibly right. complicated politically because there's no version of this film that's going to make everybody happy. Right. right? So, um, I mean, our reviews are dropping today and I have not really had a chance to sit down and read them, but I can kind of guess that, yeah, the, you know, there's going to be some complaints on the far left about this. There's going to be complaints from the, you know, so the older liberals from this. On the, you know, the center right is going to say this. I mean, you can kind of know where, what the landscape is going to be in terms of the dissatisfaction with whatever you do. So trying to weave, you know, a, a film through all that, you know, um, and you don't think that much about it, obviously, but trying trying to do something that sort of was true and accurate and emotional and engaging and really sort of illustrated this issue and, and yet didn't didn't sort of pander to or alienate any you know any of those audiences is is a, is a little bit difficult. But you know if, if I'm going to ramble for just a second about the sort of yeah. origin of it, I think you know they just they were just such interesting human beings yeah. and because they were conservatives, because they came from Fox News. It allowed us to feel a little bit of superiority to them for, for at least me and I think most viewers. Like we kind of knew who we thought we knew who they were, and then you could sort of laugh, get the audience to sort of laugh at them a little bit, and then laugh with them, and then they could certainly start to break our hearts. Because you know, right. no one is going to, no one's going to break your heart like someone you know you who is you're already sort of emotionally you know having a good time with, in terms of, of comedy and 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 quirkiness and and specificity. And and they were just they just had that and they avoided the the the, the real problem with any person who's the victim of a crime, but particularly survivors, which is we tend to handle those kinds of characters with kid gloves. And so we impose upon them a kind of earnest passivity. Like they're very earnest, they're very passive, often victims of crimes. So if you look at sort of like TV shows in which these things are, they're often, the, you know, the victim of the crime is always very noble and all that stuff. And there was just not a lot of nobility in the house. You know, There was just these people who were really interesting, who had this thing happen to them, who you could still sort of treat as real human beings and be fully engaged by, and not have to worry about you know whether or not um, whether or not they they could be engaging to us because they're inherently engaging, uh, and so there's that part of it. And the other thing, obviously, is this is this is a group of human beings who show us that the issue transcends partisanship, without yeah. question. And so that was engaging to me. Yeah. What I've just come away with at the end of that movie is, you know, I can disagree with a lot of things Gretchen Carlson did journalistically and a lot of things that she's done and that she believes and that she espoused and still recognize that what Roger Ailes did was also horrible. There could be two people who I don't really, I guess, like very much in terms of what they represent. I don't know either of them personally uh, and still be really, really invested in their stories. Absolutely. And I would argue, Tim, that appreciating that fundamental fact is how we solve this problem. The worst thing we can do for the Me Too movement is to let it get politicized in a way that we all just respond to victims by virtue of our partisanship, right? right, right. And being able to see that in these two other women, two women who are, you know, I mean, Megan's so ambitious, right? She's <laughs> she so wants to like succeed and 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 dominate that network. And she's dealt with her shit, right? And then, and then this thing happens that, that even with Gretchen's lawsuit, and she's got to go back and stand up for other women. And of course, she doesn't want to do that, but she does. And you know yeah. something? That's 
that's interesting. And a complicated, contradictory person who does a good thing is always going to be more interesting on a cinematic level than someone who does a good thing who we expect it, right? So yeah. it's, it's important that Megyn Kelly did this and not Gloria Steinem. That matters, yeah. right? And it matters to, 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 to our culture, and it matters to, to, to the entertainment value of a movie. There's a scene in the movie, and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but it's a confrontation between Kayla, Margot Robbie's character, and Megyn Kelly, played by Charlize Theron, where they're both kind of right. It's such, Tim, it's such an astute, I think, point. It's a little bit like Marriage Story, where in you know <laughs> the, the deck is just slightly stacked in favor of one. You know, <laughs> you kind of kind of feel at a certain point. And so, yes, the deck the deck is stacked at the end of the day in favor of Kayla. Um, but it, but it's it, it's this fascinating thing that I find in 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 these kinds of political things in the workplace, which is this very profound generational difference, where Kayla is basically saying, you know, why the hell did you not, you know, stand up for the rest of us? And, and Megan's saying, that's not my job, you know, that's not what we do. And 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 Kayla's like, yeah, that is your, that's all of our job. And so yeah. I found that generational difference really engaging, and I think it was probably the first scene I wrote. Really? Um, because it sort of felt like the, yeah, it felt like the kernel of the film is that to get to that, right? To get to a place where we can sort of show that kind of, you know, difference in how these things uh, happen. Uh, and so, and so, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a proud of that scene and be very happy that, that you felt exactly what it's about, which is, is sort of, sort of saying that this is, this is always going to be complicated. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, and it's only going to be, it's only going to be helpful for us if we can embrace those complications. You know, Jay Roach mentioned on the DGA uh, Director's Cut podcast that he grew up in a pretty religious household. And, of course, you grew, came from a pretty religious background. Um, I just got to talk to Margot Robbie about this role. Was was creating Kayla, was, was her being so religious, was that kind of the in for you? Was that the thing that you could relate to? And is Kayla kind of your point of view in the in the film? Yeah. So, so you know, the, the three characters – fulfill different roles. Megan is our Dante. She's our narrative center. She takes us through the story, right? Mm -hmm. um, Gretchen, our Nicole, is our moral center. She's, she's the individual whose moral choices define the narrative for us. But Kayla is our emotional center. Kayla is the mm -hmm. person we most identify with. And at the same time, she's the most unlike so many of the moviegoers who will go to see this film. Um, and so, so I think for me, she's always been the character whose emotional journey is the truest to my own personal journey, having come from that world, but also the person for whom I feel like there's the greatest purity. And she has at the end of the film, and we won't give it away, but she, she makes the choice at the end of the film that is in some ways – the only pure choice that any of these human beings totally make because all their other choices are are sort of complicated by their own histories and ambitions and 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 you know relationships but she makes a a absolutely unquestionably noble pure choice yeah and i loved being able to give that to her you know at the end of the film can you talk about your journey from seminary to screenwriting i mean you came from such a religious background that you really can you you're in yale divinity school is that correct yeah, correct. Yeah, so I, so I, I, when I graduated from Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas, um, in '86, I then go off on the mission field where I basically work for a group that 
produces Bibles to be smuggled into Eastern Europe. We were more the printing operation and less the cool Bible smugglers. They tended to be like the really cool, more Pentecostal guys, which would which would take real risk. And we were very much in awe of them. They were like the cool. They were like the cool Bible smuggler types. We were the we were not the cool ones. You must have a script somewhere called the Bible Smugglers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, James Bond for Jesus, we call it. Oh uh, and so, and so, so. And so, you know, basically, yeah, um, I, I did that for a couple of years, and then I went to divinity school at Yale, uh, divinity school, which is a um, Episcopalian school. Although I'm not from that tradition, I'm from a more of a, uh, I'm like I'm a denomination called Church of Christ, which is like the Southern Baptist. Okay. And so, I, you know, I, I at, at divinity school sort of did religious literature, got very much interested in cultural studies, and then went off and became a teacher, a professor of cultural studies back in Europe for a few years. And during that process, I wrote, started writing a couple scripts and uh, set one up one summer when I was in L.A. and sort of was off to the races as a film a film writer. Uh, relatively late late in life, I think it was 33 when I wrote my first script. Hmm. You don't see a lot of people of a liberal background who also come from a pretty religious background, um, unless, unless they kind of shed their religious background along the way. At least not portrayed popularly. I, I think the stereotype is that anybody who's a Christian must be a right-wing lunatic of some sort. Yeah, you know, I, I became a philosophy professor, right? So, yeah. and so, 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 you know, Plato talks about, you know, the, the death of religion is cosmopolitanism. And in a way, when you've lived a life where you go off and you and you, you know, you experience the world, you know, that does tend to reduce your your passion for a very specific type of religion. Now, there are many people who then remain religious and 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 have a strong faith, but it, it's a little less specifically tied to their own history at that point, and yeah. maybe even more muscular because of it. That did not happen to me. I do not consider myself a religious person in in any way. But you know, I do think that that it is true. That it's it's rare for you know people who in the arts to come from that background. But I'm I'm very glad I did. You know, I, I feel like it gives me a certain empathy for people like Roger or people like Kayla, you know, that I can, I can kind of see where they, where they come from. And I'm a, I'm a big believer that the kind of vilification that we crave around a character like Roger Ailes, if we give that pure reign, it, it reduces their, both their interest for us as an audience, but also, you know, our ability to deal with them as a problem, right? right? Because if, if the character is twirling their mustache, you know that's much more easy for us to dismiss, and and the problem with sexual harassment, especially, is it's not it's not it's not the, the cartoon villain that's that's the problem. It's the person who, you know, who's a friend, who's a mentor, who's someone you really respect, who ends up being you know coming out of nowhere with something, or you know giving in to something you've always suspected is there, and and that and that you know uh, means that that purchase has some that person has some purchase in your life, and therefore. Um, the harassment can be even even more de- devastating uh, because of it. And so I love writing conservatives. Uh, you know, I love I love I love that world because I feel like I know it pretty well. Um, I and I love the complexity of, of of people from that world, which we do not allow them often. You know, you yeah. you'll get some people complaining about Kayla. Oh, how how real is that person? And yet I know, I know people, Tim, who are absolutely ideologically committed, right? Mm-hmm. And then also kind of sexually fluid, right? And mm-hmm. at the same time, morally sincere human beings. And those three things can exist in human beings and does exist in human beings. 
and yet it's something that we never kind of see on film. We never allow, right? Because it's it just we we it, it steps outside it, it steps outside of our easy our easy comfort zones. And yeah. you know, part of the problem of this moment is we're into this you know we're into this little bit of this culture of dismissal, and um, you know, uh, particularly liberals of of my generation, you know, uh, have have this 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 need to like there's so much information always oh, it's like just dismiss. I just get just get you know no no I don't have to deal with that person. I, I've already made a decision about who that person is. I don't want right. to deal with it. Whereas leftists, you know, a little younger leftists, probably more from your generation, you know, are, are more interested to engage with it, but they maybe are sometimes subject to the need to like you know want to see that person punched in the face. They're a little bit more didactic. and a little bit like no no take them on take them on a little bit more that 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 zero tolerance urge. And so, you know, those are those are both things that can get in our way of portraying people as com as fully complex, and therefore, you know, uh, our understanding of perpetrators is is hurt because of it. Can you talk about your research for this? Like, where you got all this information? It seems like you guys really were reporters. I mean, even the costume designer going out and seeing how women dressed outside of Fox Studios to try to get, to try to get the wardrobe right. Um, I understand that you guys uh, had to look at – there was a story last week that people looked at foot fetish websites because those foot fetish websites for Fox News yeah. personalities also had useful details in the background, not about the feet, but about like right. you know, the sets and things like that. Yeah, yeah. so Fox famously – doesn't doesn't allow photography, you know, or didn't allow photography inside certain spaces, not comfortably, not publicly publicized at least. And so there was a it was hard to get some of the backstage worlds right because it had changed obviously since when we started shooting since since Roger had been there, even though it had been only a couple of years or two and a half three years. And then some of the set stuff, you know, the set they changed so much that that we had to that Mark Richter, our great production designer, had to get on some foot fetish websites. Um, uh, um, you know, and, and sort of find, find color matches and details, which he couldn't find other, elsewhere because there's no archive of some of those shows. Uh, there is some, but some others there is not. So yeah, he did. You know, we all had to do that. You know, and certainly, you know, it's always, always tough when you're writing about real people how much you interact with them, because the more you interact with them at the beginning, the more they're on your shoulder, and the more you care about what they think, and you, the more you, you know, you, you, you know, find yourself worried about portrayal. So what I try to do is I try and create a sense of trying to get a sense of who people are and try and create a, an early draft without talking to people as much as I can. Sometimes it's impossible because the only, they're the only avenues of information that is available to you. But I try and do that. And once that's done, then I'll go and meet them. Uh, and I don't always want to, but I try and force myself to. And certainly Jay has encouraged me to do even more of that. And he's very good at that at yeah. reaching out to everyone. Now, there's some people I won't meet if they have an NDA, and I know that I won't be able to use their story, so I don't want to put them in a position of meeting with me and breaking some sort of contractual relationship to to their, uh, you know, to their, the company they either work for or worked for previously. When I know I can't use their information, right. although if they call me, I'll sit down with them. Um, but but in general, we we talked about 20 people, uh, and they were you know they were very helpful and and had a lot to say and. And um, I think the film's better for it. But it's, you know, when you're in writing, it's always the question about how much you let the real people into your life. Uh, and so, yeah, that's that's my my strategy is to, to do it, do it, but do it late. I think Jay usually tries to do it as early as possible. And I think Charlize tries to avoid it entirely. Can I ask what you're working on now without taking away from 
I think you should really enjoy. Your movie is about to open. People really like and appreciate it. You're getting awards. I don't mean to say like, well, what have you done for me lately? Um, I'm not trying to take that, <laughs> take be that audience member. But um, can we talk? Can you talk about what your sort of what's in the oven? Yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm, I'm right now writing the I'm writing for um, uh, Robert De Niro the uh, Titan book, which is the history of John D. Rockefeller, oh. and it's an examination of what extreme wealth means and what extreme wealth inequality means in a society. Uh, and and how it influences you know how it influences uh, the family around you, so that 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 uh, that's what I'm currently working on. And then you know I've um, I've just finished a first draft uh, for Francis Lawrence, the director of Hunger Games films, and you know uh, Red Sparrow uh, on the Gawker story, which is the um, you know, which is the Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, <laughs> Nick Denton. Uh, story, which is a little bit more comedic and a little bit, you know, a little bit obviously different in tone than this, but is about, you know, social media and 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 blog culture and and you know and all that stuff as it plays out in you know relatively narrow time frame as well. So so that's yeah, those are the, those are the two things I've been kicking around over the last year and a half or so. I I, I had dinner with somebody two nights ago where we asked when is the Gawker movie going to happen. So. Thank you. I can't wait to see that. And, and Titan, of course. Well, uh, exactly. Uh, no, probably probably your friends are not asking you so much about when when the John D. Rockefeller story is coming out. But yeah, that the the I mean the, that's a great story. It's such an interesting story, the Gawker story. I mean, it's so complicated, and all the parties are are very complicated. So again, it's the sort of thing I love, which is. You know, messy human beings who, you know, we think we have a very strong sense of who they are, who maybe we don't, you know, and, and, and who can take us on a journey of, of helping us understand more about ourselves. That's it. Thank you so much for listening this far. I hope you've enjoyed the words of Charles Randolph and Margot Robbie. If you're a fan of Margot Robbie's work, and really, who isn't? You're definitely going to want to check out the next issue of Movie Maker Magazine. We love your feedback. We definitely want to hear your thoughts on this podcast and everything Movie Maker related. You can hit us up at MovieMaker.com. You can hit us up at MovieMakerMag on Instagram and Twitter. Of course, you can go on the iTunes reviews and give us feedback there. At Movie Maker, we really want to be the best resource we can possibly be for movie makers and anyone who loves the art and craft of making movies. So please, don't hesitate to reach out, hit us up, let us know how we can do that better. Thank you so much. See you soon.